the marinade. There's no O in marinade. Let's try it one more time. Ready? One, <laughs> two, three. <laughs> the marinade. Marrow. Marrow. Marinade. Bone marinade. The marinade. The marinade. With Jason Earl. I met Billy in the boot heel of Missouri. He said, stay another round, son, what's the hurry? If your mind is clear and your eyes ain't going blurry, well, it ain't last call. Welcome to The Marinade with Jason Earl, a free-flowing conversation about the creative process with creative people. This is a bonus episode, and our guest is our friend Trapper Haskins. Trapper is a woodworker, a writer, a boat builder, a vintage baseball player, and one hell of a musician. His record, Blood and the Honey, came out earlier this year, and it is absolutely wonderful. We talk about some of the songs on that album and the making of that record during this conversation. And after you listen, I highly recommend going and just devouring that beautiful record, which is available wherever you consume music. Uh, Also, TrapperHaskins.com. Well, you can sign up for his newsletter, which is really cool. Um, because he has such diverse interests, uh, his newsletter that he releases uh, periodically is really, really entertaining. And, um, and this conversation was equally so. Daddy was a preacher and a stiller. Every man's born with both the same killer beneath his skin, somewhere within. Hey, y'all, before we get to our conversation with Trapper, just a few little housekeeping things. Give us a follow on social media, at Marinade Podcast. I'm doing a recap of three years of the Marinade. We will turn three on September 7th. Our very first episode was released three years ago with BJ Barham. It's incredible to me to think that we've come this far, and I really appreciate each and every one of you who listens and spreads the word. Speaking of which, tell a friend about the show, subscribe on your podcast app, give us a rating. All that stuff is free and makes a big difference for us. If you really like what we're doing, please consider joining our Patreon community, patreon.com slash podcast, where for just a few bucks a month, you can gain access to Patreon-exclusive content. All right, y'all, without further ado, it is a great honor to present my conversation with Trapper Haskins. How's it going? Uh, it's going good. It's going good, man. I'm just uh, just sweeping up some 
some sand. I've got sand all over my house because we uh, we just we just returned from your beautiful state oh, Jesus. down there. And uh, my why the kids. Hell, why the hell did you do that? Well, you know it's funny. We were um, we we had uh, we had rented a place on the Gulf Coast like months ago. We set this up, and then when everything went to shit, we were sort of thinking, well, <clears throat> we may not get to go down there. And I've got a ten and a twelve year old, and uh, as you can imagine, they're they're uh, <laughs> they would be very disappointed. But anyways, we were yeah. talking with the rental company, and they said, "Listen, they said unless unless the state of Florida closes the beaches, then there's no refunds." <clears throat> and so, you know, my wife and I discussed it, and it was either stay home in Tennessee and just eat it, or uh, go down there and try and be very cautious about things which is what we we ended up doing so uh but yeah it's it was <laughs> we were masked masked up the whole time and yeah it was it was interesting it's it's man it's and um, i guess we can just dive right in um it it is so every little every time i leave the house is this anxiety riddled experience you know yeah um yeah and you're you're in the mid-state orlando yeah i'm in orlando um so it's pretty bad here uh i think we had like we we've been averaging close to uh a thousand cases a day here um just in just in orlando or in that county yeah, it's like ten thousand oh. statewide. Yeah, in 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 the greater Orlando area, we're we're averaging somewhere like between eight hundred and a thousand cases, and uh, it it's just I mean every like I said every day is just this anxiety riddled roulette. You know, it's like <laughs> yeah, that's roulette's a really good way of putting it. I definitely felt like when we came down there last because we drove home on Monday. Mm-hmm. to Tennessee and um it yeah it definitely felt internally like we were kind of dropping into the the hot zone but like I said when you got you know we're 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 just a <laughs> working class family and, and it already put like <clears throat> you're sort of weighing you know personal safety and stuff against against uh against the vacation you promised your kids and then and then you uh, it, it, roulettes are, that's, I can't think of a better way of describing it. Uh, it definitely feels like you've, like you've put your chips down and you've been in the, and the wheel's going to spin. And really all you can do is, um, you know, mask up and try and avoid people. And it was funny because, um, you know, I felt like when we were down on the beach and in the water, I don't know that we as a family were ever any closer than probably 15 feet away from people. I felt like we yeah. were really well distance it's when you get back up into the town mm-hmm. and the kids want the kids want to go get ice cream and you look in the ice cream store and there's 30 people in there no yeah. one has a mask and everyone's 18 inches apart and i was like we're we're just not going in there i'm sorry kids. right well the beach it's, thing it's is interesting because like we've gone to the beach a couple of times uh and i don't have any i feel safe every time i feel totally safe we're outside yeah. we're far away from people beaches have gotten right. a lot of, of of coverage in the press but like I'm much more worried about 
people going to restaurants and my partner manages a fucking restaurant. And so it's like, Oh God. So that's another layer, right? Is that she, if she doesn't go to work, she doesn't get paid. She's got to go in and put her, you know, put herself at risk while I'm sitting at home, you know, trying not to just stress about the fact that she's in harm's way like that, you know? Um, yeah, yeah, and are they and are they like are they opened at fifty percent capacity? Mm-hmm. Or are they are they mitigating the? Yeah, they're the doing a, as much as they can. You know, they're doing everything they can. I mean, private businesses from uh, here in town, other than there's a famous one in Winter Park that held like a maskless rally, and people came from all over and. Some ridiculousness, but for the most part, man, oh, people are, yeah, I know people are being super smart, like on an individual basis here. Right. So Orlando yeah, is not representative yeah. of the rest of Florida though, uh, in so many yeah. ways, but people are being really good on an individual basis, except for these motherfuckers who are like, I, man, if I'm in the grocery store, I it is. I know exactly what I need to get. I know I'm gonna grab it. I'm gonna go. And these folks who are leisurely shopping for right. groceries right now are a special right. kind of psychotic. I don't understand. Yeah, it definitely feels like when you go to a store for something, it feels it definitely feels more like a mission than an errand these <laughs> right. days. You know what I mean? <laughs> you gotta get in and get out and, <clears throat> and you go ahead and get your way around it quickly and. You know, again, it's all about just it's all about minimizing the risk that you expose yourself to. Because, uh, I mean, I'm not a I'm not a hypochondriac, but uh, but I am I am diabetic, and so the, the, the whole I feel like I've got another layer of risk there. So it just it worries me to death. So, you know, yeah, it's, well, in in the thing you weird said, weird world the being diabetic, but also um, the other challenge that for you uh, that I have so much empathy for folks with kids. I don't have kids. So it's a different level, you know, like the concern that you must feel and the way you have to navigate. And and like you said, and balance is one of the things I wanted to talk to you about because you do so much. And I want to talk about how you balance it all with a family and the, the balance in this case of the safety of your family with also like your kids are at this critical stage in their lives and you want them to be able to have the experiences that they need to have socialization and Mm -hmm. trips and all that kind of stuff. And at the same time, the responsibility that you have to keep them safe, like balance in general, I, 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 let's kind of get to that direction. So we're not just talking about the fucking pandemic, but how, (laughs) how are, how are you like, how do you think about balance in your life? You have all these different interests. You have your family. You have your work. How do you uh, structure your life so that you can maintain that balance? Uh, well, I think my wife would probably argue that I'm I'm I'm, I'm always struggling to maintain that balance. It, I mean, I've got a wood shop. Mm-hmm. I play music. I had some gigs booked, um, and yeah, we've got we've got kids too. So trying to balance, and I'm and I'm working on a book. So between between writing and then writing music and then doing woodwork, it's um, it, it definitely feels like I've got some plates spinning. And I find that I do best. Like there was for a while, I tried to kind of keep all the plates spinning at one time, and it's just such a difficult thing to do. And you feel like, um, actually, my wife and I were talking about it. I said I feel like I'm trying to move three 
balls down the field and I can only move one a couple of inches and then I go over to the other one and move that one downfield a couple of inches. Mm. And I've come to realize that I'm more efficient and I would venture to say most people probably are. <clears throat> if you can focus on one of those things, even for you know what, even a short amount of time, so instead of trying to do everything all in one day, I might spend four or five days in the shop doing nothing but woodwork and then the next week um the next week i'm working a little heavier on my book than i would have the previous week so i don't know i I definitely don't have it figured out um i've kind of tried some different strategies but uh yeah i I wouldn't say that it's really balanced i feel like i'm (laughs) I i feel like it's imbalanced but that but that imbalance always shifts if you know what i'm saying so instead of having everything balanced at one time um, again, I may be balanced heavy towards music at one point, and then the next week I'm heavy balanced towards writing or woodworking, and I just try and keep um, keep any of those things from falling off the radar. Uh, so that's that's sort of what I figure works for me. Do you? So a couple couple questions from that. Do you? Yeah. Do you have like? Because I I guess one of the things that that causes that in that imbalance would be. Uh, most of your creative pursuits are pretty solitary, right? Like, yeah, because I was just thinking as you were saying that, is there some way to have a, to have kind of a team approach to it or to get other people involved to help you with, um, some of these things? But I guess other than maybe woodworking and I, and I don't know enough about what you do with woodworking to, to really speak to that, but other than that, I mean, songwriting is a pretty solitary thing. Um, uh, writing in a novel is a, a 100% solitary thing. <laughs> so yeah. I guess, yeah, I guess unless you, you know, clone yourself. Well, I mean, yeah. So here's the thing, not, not to bring it back to the pandemic, but I really feel like, so I'm working on this book but I had a, a biweekly writing group that I got together with the, uh, at the Spring Hill Arts Council mm. <clears throat> here. And so we would get together and critique each other's work and talk about writing techniques and that kind of stuff. And cool. with the pandemic, that whole thing has kind of gone away and we're just all in a holding pattern, um, you, you know, waiting for you know, clearance or whatever to kind of get back together and do that. And as far as songwriting, I know you've done some open mics. I still play quite a few open mics. And so while songwriting is a solitary thing, I definitely feel like there's a huge benefit to um, songwriters getting together and sharing their stuff on stage. And again, with the pandemic, we haven't been able to do that either. So a lot of the things that I, that I pursue, they're they're kind of, they're solitary, I guess, in their initial creation, but I definitely share them through the through that sort of production, you, you know, after the after the initial creation, I kind of share it before it becomes fully fleshed out, and I haven't been able to share it in the same way since the pandemic, which is kind of, uh, you know, it's, it's made things that, like you said, a little more solitary. Now with the woodworking, uh, that's a that's really a solitary pursuit. I do some stuff in people's homes sometimes. I do some custom woodwork, but I've really backed off on doing that and focused more on furniture and um just some sculpture and stuff that i'm building in the building in the shop and that's i don't have any employees in the wood shop so it's just uh it's just me and some headphones listening to the podcast and and uh <laughs> the machinery out there so that's in a lot of ways that's almost 
the most solitary thing I do is just being in a wood shop because you're with the headphones on and the machinery running. It's just me in my own head. So it, when you're in that that kind of space and you're kind of cutting in and out, Trapper. I don't know if it's. Oh gosh, I'm sorry. That's okay. It moves. Some yeah. Sometimes you're super clear and then you're kind of uh, muffled. Is a better word. Um, okay. How about now? Can you that's hear me now? great, right there. Okay. Thank you. Um, so let's say, like, if you're if you're in the woodshop, that seems like, and and I um I read uh the the stories behind the songs for your record, Blood and the Honey, which is just so wonderful, man. I know I've told you before, oh, cool. but it's just so wonderful and um and has inspired me. Um, which I want to tell you the the full story behind that in a second. But okay, please do. Yeah. Yeah, but the reading those stories, it seems like there are for you, your writing process with songs at least is it seems like there are these moments of inspiration that strike. And when those moments strike that, uh, that are often, uh, you tell the story of driving in the car and listening to the Dave Rawlings, um, uh, version of Cortez, the killer oh, and yeah. that inspired something. Uh-huh. Right. So there's these moments, which is, is a thing that happened to me listening to your music. So I was listening wow. to, I see that now. And, uh, I don't know what it, so the whole story is I, I had to go, uh, have an ultrasound done and right in the middle of all this shit. And, uh, that kind of thing is such a difficult, it's, that's my greatest fear is my mortality and going to the doctor is an event for me. Right. Um, same, same. Yeah. it's, It's huge. So it's like that I was sitting in the parking lot and just talk and it's just an ultrasound right it shouldn't be that big of a deal but it is for me it just is and um so i had to like really give myself a pep talk and i was listening to your record uh as i was sitting there and i was giving myself a pep talk and i see that now came in and i started writing down some lyrics and those lyrics did not end up becoming a part of a song but the melody inspired me Uh to then go back and rework a song i've been working on for a year and I just, I love this song. It just hasn't made sense. Like I can't find the melody. That's not how my brain works. It typically, it's a poem. And then I try to cram that into a melody, you know, that's how some of my brain processes the songwriting uh, experience and something about your tune just unlocked something in my brain. And now I'm so happy with this song. I'm just, it's finally where I wanted it. So I had that similar kind of moment to what, you were going through um with that when i was listening to cortez the killer yeah yeah <clears throat> yeah it's um it's funny when i was a kid uh my parents aren't musical but my dad uh-huh. he had he started playing guitar about the same time i did so i was eight nine when i started playing and he had a guitar uh that he bought and then he bought a bunch of songbooks to go with the dylan and crosby stills and nash and all this stuff and he would, he would try and teach me those songs, and so I had to, had those books there, and I would be learning those songs, and um, I don't know why. I mean, it sounds ridiculous to say you get bored with Bob Dylan, but <clears throat> when I was a kid, I'd be playing those chords and singing Dylan's words, and then, you know, by the second or third verse, I was kind of off on my own tangent, sort of writing my own uh, words to it, and then the melody would sort of change a little bit and then the you know i had sort of a derivative of of 
that song and then it became my own, which is the same thing that happened with In the Boot Heel of Missouri on Blood and the Honey, which I don't think sounds anything like Cortez the Killer. Mm-mm. But, you know, as I was driving around, some different words kind of came into my head and then I just turned the volume down <clears throat> and wrote the rest of the song while I was driving, driving around that day, you know, just kind of off on my own tangent, really. So it sounds like you did that with, with, with one of mine, listened to that and then went off on a tangent and, and finished your own song that was sort of lying fallow for a while. For sure. It sounds nothing like yours, but it, it, there was something about, and that's the part of the magic of music. It just, there was something about the melody of I See That Now that inspired me in that moment. And, and there's probably something to just the... I, I typically don't write very well under pressure. I, it needs to be something I'm doing every day. It needs to be part of my routine. But I think there might have been something about just the mental state I was in in that moment that uh, that kind of spurred something. It was almost like my brain was looking for a distraction from, oh, from yeah. reality, right? And, um, yeah. and typically I'm not – I don't know. It, it's not that easy for me, which made me want to ask you about on O St. Demphna – you you had gone through this incredibly traumatic experience and then in the story on Instagram you said that in the next couple of days you wrote that song can can you talk about that um that song coming to life and like how were you able to 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 come up with anything coherent <laughs> in that moment <laughs> not only coherent but yeah, beautiful it's probably my favorite song on the record <laughs> so you said that you write like from, you you write a poem and then you sort of um, not saying you shoehorn that into a melody but you sort mm-hmm. of construct a melody to fit those words. Yeah, usually. Right? <clears throat> so a lot of times what I do, a lot of times I'm not even writing with a guitar in my hand, just because I feel like and and I've written some songs that way, um, but you're just so focused on you're, you're so focused on trying to create something original that sometimes you can get this like paralysis by analysis kind of thing and you just get stuck mm. and i find that the, the stuff that i write uh that i feel the most comfortable about or maybe the most confident in is the stuff that i just kind of write when i'm driving around in my truck and just just blathering idiocy and just kind of you know, just you just have placeholder words and just kind of coming up with melodies and sometimes that melody will kind of uh i don't know trigger or invite a certain word or a certain phrase and when I was driving around those few couple days after that, uh, we can get into that in a, in, in a bit, but um, I, as far as how those words came to me, I'm not, I'm not sure other than I had heard that story about Virginia Woolf um, and how she committed suicide by filling her pockets up with rocks and just walking into the river and basically drowning herself. And uh, coming through what I had come through, I think in I think in earlier years I might have listened to that and been like, "Wow, that's a really kind of cool, morbid story." But after this, I kind of, you know, I connected with it in a very visceral way. And so that was maybe the first line that I wrote was that one. It ended up being in the in the second verse. But uh, yeah, I just you know going to job sites or going to the studio or whatever I was doing the week after I went to Vanderbilt, um, I just kept the radio off, which I don't always do, but I just kept mm. the radio off and I just kind of went round and round with some lyrics. And, and, you know, a lot of times 
I'll, I'll write enough lyrics to fill the song up and then that will be it. And this was one of the few times that I wrote far more lyrics that ended up in the song. There was probably three or four verses and then I cut it down to two, just the two that kind of really felt like they would be a gut punch. Mm. Um, and there was some stuff that, that I cut out of that. <clears throat> but something about driving around um, and not not hitting the keys on a keyboard or not playing the notes on the guitar, something about just driving around and letting your subconscious uh, sort of wander around and then letting that stuff unfiltered just come out of your mouth. Uh, if I get something that I think is good, I'll just pick up the phone and I'll hit the little... Uh, like a voice memo mm-hmm. app and just record it. And and it's full. My voice memo app is full of stuff that I would be completely embarrassed if somebody got a hold of my phone and played them all. But <laughs> but there but there's not but there's nuggets of stuff in there that I'm confident will become a song at some point. And if those lyrics aren't if those lyrics don't become a part of a song, the melody will. Or maybe vice versa. Maybe the melody gets buried somewhere and I pull those lyrics into a. Uh, into a different different uh, song, but it's interesting to me that you can write the words on paper and then come up with a melody. That's something I've tried to do in the past, and I just I can't make it work. Like the words and melody generally come at the same time. Yeah. And like I said, a lot of that time, a lot of that time, I'm not even not even holding an instrument, and I'm on the interstate. <laughs> well, I think that probably comes from my family's not didn't isn't really musical uh, at all either. Um, and, and no, like to the point where my parents and grandparents don't know anybody in the family who plays an instrument. Like I'm the only one. Um, so okay. I did, I, I grew up listening to m- lots of music and it hit me in a certain way, but I didn't pick up the guitar till I was probably 15 or 16. And then I didn't really start mm-hmm. playing it until I was somewhere around 18, 19, and then there was like a ten year period where I just I I just plateaued like same same uh, five or six chords that I felt comfortable with maybe seven and just plateaued and a lot of that was uh, not feeling comfortable taking risks creative risks because okay. of like yeah. ego getting in the way which I think is which uh-huh. I think is why I. I'm only recently starting to try it the other way, like you were talking about with like nonsense sounds or whatever. Um, and oh, that's yeah. how so many, you know, Kevin Kinney writes that way. Jeff Tweedy writes that way. So many people do. Um, it, I, I think for me, even if no one's listening for so many years, uh-huh. I would feel self-conscious about something like that and think it was silly. Um, so it's oh, like a okay. rewiring. Does that yeah. make sense? It's like a rewiring of it, my brain that I'm going through. It makes total sense, and from a from a writing standpoint, not a music standpoint. But I know you've heard the uh, was it, is it Anne Lamott who says uh, you got to give yourself permission to write a shitty first draft. Yeah, that's um, great. That's so, so important. So it's you know if you're trying to write a book and you keep erasing that sentence until <laughs> it's a perfect sentence, and then you move on, you're not gonna. It's gonna take you decades yeah. to produce anything, and by the time you, by the time you get to the end of it you're a different you'll have a different voice than you did at the beginning so i think of those two things the same way with songwriting and with writing you got to give yourself permission to just write a shitty first draft because you can't edit something that's not on the paper or you can't edit a song that's not 
been written. You know what I mean? So did I'm, I'm curious, did you ever, when you plateaued, did you ever put it down or did you just, just, did you just plow through those years just playing the same stuff? Uh, because I would think I would probably be tempted to, I don't know. I feel like I might be tempted to put it down, get kind of frustrated. Yeah. I, I don't think there was any frustration. I think there was, um, ambivalence for a while. Okay. Uh, toward the okay. creative part of it. I think um uh-huh. I never stopped voraciously consuming music. Um but honestly, man, it until I moved to Orlando, until I met Chris really, and then and the world she was in because Chris is an artist and uh we met because she was a singer in a band. And oh, cool. Yeah, cool. that's she was on stage and I was completely taken by her and you were smitten yeah i was smitten <laughs> exactly and uh and yeah it was like of course you ended up with a, a singer in a soul band <laughs> um but but of course i did but at the same time like you know at that time i wasn't really playing very much you know i was listening to a lot of stuff but i wasn't playing so this this is only the last seven years that i'm talking about that i really started to feel comfortable uh, and some of that may just be age too, right? So like uh-huh. when we met, I was 31 or two and uh, 32, I guess. And so I was starting to kind of stop giving a fuck about people, people's opinions yeah. of, of, you know, <laughs> if that makes any sense. Oh, so. dude. Yeah. <laughs> it is such a gift when you get to that, to that. I'm 43 now mm. and I, I, man, what you're saying a hundred percent. Yeah. It's such a blessing to look, look back on some of those earlier years and you realize that your ego got in the way uh, of stuff. And I don't mean that your ego got in the way in that you thought you, you thought you were everything. No, your ego in that you were you, the opposite, that mm-hmm. you were concerned so much about what other people would think. And if you created something that was a little bit, a little bit at the edge of the dial, you know, something that was a little bit different that you get sort of, I don't know, whatever mocked or ignored for it that yeah. you just don't do it. But yeah, what a blessing to get a little older and just be like, um, you know, I, I've said when, when we put out this record, I said to uh, uh, Rye Evans, who's the producer and the engineer uh, in it, I said, I don't, I want people to hear it because um, I think it deserves to be heard, but I don't, I don't really, what people think of it is not going to change my opinion. Uh, opinion of it, mm. I guess, because I'm at an age now where like, I, I'm confident in the songs and I want you to hear it, but at the end of the day, if you don't like it, I don't, I don't care. I'm still going to make the same songs that I'm going to, that I'm going to make. And I think, I think earlier I probably would have edited myself a whole lot more um, to, to try and shoehorn it into some, you know, some certain genre or sound or whatever, mm. but uh it's uh what a gift dude what a gift but it sounds like from what i'm gathering from uh reading and what you've said about rye is it sounds like that's someone who really encourages your art and uh and and supports you and that's so key too is even if you don't necessarily care what other people think having somebody who you respect support your art and push your art and and encourage yeah. you to make that stuff is so huge yeah i i, I care what he thinks I, I'll, right. I'll be honest about that i definitely care what he thinks and he 
uh, Rye, and I've told him this in a lot of ways, was responsible for Blood and the Honey getting made because he and I, we had a band years ago with Trapper Haskins and the Bitter Swill, and we put out two records in 2009 and 10, and uh, and then my world just kind of turned upside down with some stuff, and and I had written some songs in the in the early 2010s, and and about about the time, um, gosh, it would have been 2016, 17. Ryan and I were talking. He called me up one day and he's like, "Listen, man, you just—I don't want you to let these songs die on the vine. Mm. Let's make this record. And even if we have to space it out over weeks and months or even years, let's let's make this record." <clears throat> and so, I was working at the time. <laughs> I was working an office job. It was the one and only office job I've ever had in my life. And so, he and I had a standing appointment every Thursday night. I would leave the office and go to his studio and we'd be in there sometimes till one, two, two thirty in the morning, uh, recording some stuff and, and I'd <laughs> and I would uh saunter into work the next day a little a little tired but having moved the uh, moved the needle on the record just a little bit. So yeah, it's important to have people who um who I you know, who encourage what you're doing. I I definitely don't mean it to sound like uh, I want to exist in a vacuum and just make what I want to make. Um, right. I guess, I guess more what I mean is, is I want to record the stuff that I'm writing and I don't want to edit myself to someone else's liking, but I definitely want somebody and need somebody like Rye who says, I believe in what you're doing. You know, I want to help you out. We should continue to do this, which is what he did. And, and God bless him for it. Cause I don't, I don't know the blood and the honey would have gotten made uh, without his insistence. That's awesome. And I think, you know, I kind of want to explore that a little bit more because I think recently my attitude was always um, that it's not, uh, you know, if you don't like a place, a physical place that you're living in, that it's you and not the place. That was always kind of my my thought about things. And that's Mm -hmm. part of what really ramped up my writing was that I was living in a place that kind of sucked and I thought this can't suck that bad. Like there's got to be a, an element of me not reacting well <laughs> to this place, right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. There's it can't be the place's fault that I'm not happy right now. And so, right, I started a blog where I would uh, go out and seek interesting things, right? And so I would write about oh, those cool. things, and it's kind of like a travel blog, but for a small town, you know. Um, okay. And that kind of snowballed into other things. And recently what I've been thinking about, especially a fucking pandemic, especially with the pandemic, um, I've been thinking about like place does matter though, right? So it, it's it's both. It's both the, at, mm-hmm. the the atmosphere you're in, the environment that you're in impacts you. And you can only control your reaction to that environment. It's a both and thing. And I think I previously thought right. about it as either or, but, um, oh. but huh. yeah, but that's, that's the difference I think about where I'm at right now in my life, uh, is that, you know, in that place I mentioned earlier, I remember mm-hmm. I used to carry around a journal, which I still do. And this was probably like 2000, seven, eight, I'm talking about when I first started carrying around a journal everywhere I go. And, okay. uh, I was out with some buddies 
and we were having beers and I had a thought and I wrote down the thought and my, my buddy who was like the most progressive amongst the group, <laughs> um, uh-huh. said, dude, what are you doing? And I was like, well, I had an idea. I was writing on the idea. You know, I, I carry this journal with me all the time. And he's like, do you take that with you when you're, I was single. He's like, do you take that with you when you go on dates? And I'm like, yeah, of course. I, I, I take it with me all the time. And he was like, <laughs> he was like, that that is such a stupid idea. Like you look like an idiot. And, and I thought, well, first of all, why are these people my friends? Yeah. <laughs> Secondly, <laughs> what, <laughs> what, what am I doing in this place? You know? Yeah. Um, yep. That's pretty, that's a pretty small minded reaction. <laughs> and this, and dude, I'm telling you, this is the guy who was like the, the, the more open-minded of my friends and a, a guy who opened my mind in a lot of ways and made me see some, some bad attitudes that I have and negative attitudes that I had that I've, that okay. I've worked on, you know? So it, it, that kind of stuff though. Um, and at that point I would have been 26 or seven years old. Um, but like that kind of thing can really have a detrimental impact on your creative journey. Um, it, but if you're in an environment where you've got somebody who's saying, Hey man, Thursday, we got a standing date. We're, we're hanging out. We're getting this work done. We're going to get in the studio. Yeah. We're going to put this down because this matters. Um, yep. that's huge. It makes such a difference. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And, um, it, you know, it sort of teaches you something. I mean, making music is fun and recording is fun, but obviously there were some days where it was whatever raining and it was early, uh, you know, it's the winter and, the, and it's getting dark early and I don't really want to go up there. I'd rather go home and sit on the couch and drink a beer, hang out with my kids or play cards with them or whatever. But we had a standing appointment. So I would go up there, you know, it's like I said, every, every Thursday and do it. And there's, uh, it's just, there's something to be said for, um, you know, you have, you have that goal, so you create a plan. The plan was every Thursday we're going to work on this thing. And then you just have to work that plan. You can't just work on it when you feel like it. You've got to, um, you know, we, we, we had an understanding that we were both going to be. He's a welder, um, so he he worked all day welding. He, there's probably some days that he didn't feel like uh, working on it. But we had committed to each other that we were going to be there every Thursday night to work on the thing for uh, for a few hours and it's sort of, it's, you know, you're a runner. So, you know, that term, the pain cave, you just sort of, you're mm-hmm. going to get in the pain cave. And you're just going to, you're just going to do it whether you feel like doing it or not. So, Oh man, the... I think that, uh, I mean, I've, uh, I think I had a tendency in the past to sort of, um, you know, like I'm an Enneagram type seven. So I've sort of, I got, you know, 10,000 hobbies and, I kind of get lost in them all sometimes and have a hard and, and have in the past had a hard time finishing some of them because mm. you get in that messy middle, you get in that messy middle where you're not necessarily near the end and you don't have the same excitement that you did at the beginning. And it's easy in that lull in the middle mm. to just kind of drop off. And, uh, this and doing some of the athletic stuff that I've done, has sort of taught me, you just, you've got to push through that middle part if you've, if you ever want to see the end. So that's, you gotta, you gotta go, you got to get in the pain cave and just go. <laughs> That's great. That, there's so many parallels. I just read Haruki Murakami is what I talk about when I talk about running. Have you ever read that? Oh, man. Yeah. No, I, that's on my list. You got That's to. on my list. I you got to. That. Yeah. It, yeah. Uh, 
it, there's so there's such a parallel between running uh, and in the creative process that that really resonates with me. What you just said about finishing, I, you know, one of the smartest guys I know, uh, somebody said about him one time, and, and I I, th- I don't think this is true of him anymore, which is why I'm saying it. Um, but said, you know, he could do anything he wants, but he just can't finish anything. He's just constantly working on some new project and that new project Mm -hmm. never comes to fruition. Um, and I think he's worked on that in recent years and, uh, and is now getting to a place where he is finishing things, but the lessons Mm -hmm. learned from running, especially when you talk about, I mean, you've run marathons, like the, the distance, the diff, the mental discipline it takes to to get up and do that work every day and uh-huh. then to finish uh especially after you know you i read what you wrote about like uh that 22 mile mark that magic 22 mile mark yeah. <laughs> <laughs> with that bear jumps on your back and i think that, that can be so true i think like yeah. i i wanted to ask you about your book because like you made so much progress and you kind of, and you talked recently somewhere on, in your many outlets and folks should, who are listening should go to Trapper, uh, trapperhaskins.com and then also follow you on socials. Cause you, yeah, I think you put out some really useful stuff, especially for people who okay. are, are going through the creative process. Um, it's really helpful to see you post like word counts. You do that fairly often oh, where yeah. you're like, yeah, I got to this yeah. milestone or that milestone. Um, right. Because I think the, I'm at, I'm at mile 22 of my novel that I've been working on for about a year. Oh, nice. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. But, but the bear's on my back, right? So, um, yeah. I'm, I am slogging along, right? Like just barely putting that, that step in front of the other. And what I'm finding is something relates to what you said earlier. And so I want to hear like, if you can relate to this and, and if so, what you do about it is that, okay. um, is that I'm now finding myself being especially critical. Whereas when I first started the thing, it was so exciting and I had my plan and I was going along with it and then it went in different directions I didn't expect it to go. And that was fine because I enjoyed those tangents and I and I, that's what the characters needed and that's where it was going. Um, yeah. But now that I'm this far along, I, and I don't know why, I, I don't know if it's just, what's going on in the world right now. I don't know if it's how I'm just feeling uh, more generally, but now that I'm at, I can see the finish line, I can feel the finish line and everything. I'm a soup. I'm hypercritical all of a sudden. Have you had that experience? Yeah. So I have, and, and I would venture to say without having seen it or even talk to you about the novel before I would venture to say that part of those feelings are sort of born of the fact that when you started on page one it was going to be the great American novel and now that you're at mile 22 it's still probably a damn good novel but there's a part of you that recognizes that um that not just you that we can never make things whether it's music or writing we're just never able to make it as perfect as it was in our head. Mm. And so those final few miles, there's this danger where we just try and sabotage the thing because it's not going to be, because it can't be what it was in our head that we find these sort of subconscious ways to kind of 
to, to sabotage it or to slow ourselves down <clears throat> or something to kind of um, justify to ourselves that, well, it, you know, it, it can't be great anyways. So, you know, uh, I, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to fall off right here. We'll just let it plateau or, or we'll mm. get hypercritical of it. I know exactly what you're talking about because I've done it too. And I just keep pushing through on the word counts and get to the end and go, yep, it's as shitty as I thought it was going to be. <laughs> go back and, and try and edit it. But I, um, yeah, man, I, I totally sympathize with that, that feeling. It's like, it's like you, it's like running the marathon. And when it clicks over on mile 20 and you realize I've still got another 10 K to run, like, why am I even doing this? And yeah. I'm not. I'm not going to have as fast a time as I thought I was going to have. I'm not going to get a PR. Yeah. Maybe I should just walk for a few miles here. There's there's a lot of, there's a lot of parallels between both of those, uh, both of those pursuits. That, and, um, and you can't know it until you've done it. Like everybody can tell you that the bear jumps on your back at mile 22, but until you've hit mile 22, you don't know what that feeling is. Like, <laughs> you know. Oh, the 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 muscle fatigue, the mental <laughs> fatigue, the the you know the 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 sort of regret that comes crashing down on you, like you realize, like I paid money to do this, and I have never felt this physically shitty in my life. Like, what am I doing out here? But you know, a couple miles later, you cross that finish line, and I don't know about you, but I broke down in tears the first marathon i did when i crossed the finish i cried for 20 minutes yeah it just it feels like you have like it feels like you've gotten to the top of a mountain it doesn't matter how long it took you to get there the fact that you got there when probably 12 months before you're like there's no way somebody can run 26 miles and then you're doing it it's just such a monumental feeling so uh (laughs) yeah no i don't know i don't know what let us down that road but yeah it's it's there's some similarities for sure. Yeah, and it, I mean, and the other the other impacts. Yeah, I think the once you've gone through it, once you've done it, then you can look back, of course, with fresh eyes and see it differently and understand some things. But, but I I didn't really realize what an impact uh, me running a marathon would have on the people in my life, also, because huh. you're you're going through so much emotionally as you prepare for it. And then the race itself is so emotional, like you said at the end. I just completely broke down. Um, yeah. That you're and, and during it, you have these moments where you're like replaying just moments of your life, and <laughs> like that second yeah. half of the race, man. I was I was in my own head about like all these different moments in my life, and I think again. There's so many times during the writing of the novel where that happens because these characters aren't me, but so much of me is going to be in these characters and so much of my experience is going to be in these characters. And so there are these moments where I'm, I'm writing about this guy or about this girl and, and I'm thinking about either my own life or a, a good friend who I've lost or you know all these heavy things. And I think a very similar thing happens when you're running a marathon where – I say probably mile mile eighteen is where things really started to get tough for me, and uh, same yeah eighteen was like 
I, I remember my legs just stopping working. I mean, they were still moving, but I didn't feel like mm-hmm. I had any real control over what they were doing. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and at that moment, I started to just think about like nasty things I might have thought or said to people and like all this heavy stuff, you know, that, yeah. Yeah. that also comes up in the creative process um, if you're deep into it. Yeah, that's it, that's interesting. I don't. I I had a. I guess I had a similar experience, and it's like, for me, eighteen to twenty, those are difficult miles. And like I said, after you cross twenty, you're kind of counting down at that yeah. point. You've 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 crossed into the twenties, and you're counting down. But yeah, definitely that that eighteen to twenty hole, and really that latter half of the race entirely. You sort of and, and like you said, I don't know why it is, but your body at that point is just kind of on autopilot chugging along. And unless you've got some earbuds in and you're listening to a book or you're listening to some music, um, your, your mind is already, your mind's already had, you know, two, three, three hours, depending on how fast you are to sort of conjure up all these, whatever regrets and mistakes. And mm-hmm. you, you can definitely find once your body's on autopilot, your mind start to dwell on these certain things that, that sort of spiral spiral around and it's uh yeah you just you can't know what it feels like until you've done it it's a weird weird headspace that you get in late late on in an endurance race like that those in triathlons and uh doing some cycling some centuries and stuff those those sort of things will they kind of mess with your head a little bit well, so what does taking that back to the the novel writing process or the book writing is is your is your book a novel? No, my book is uh, it's kind of a memoir travelogue. Okay. Um, so, you know, t- talking about finishing things. Um, when I I grew up in Memphis and I went to Memphis State and I was an English major there, and I dropped out um, just because I kind of saw a future of being in academics, which is not really what I wanted to do, I guess. I'm a little too antsy to sit in a classroom. And so uh, we, my wife and I, we left uh, Tennessee and we moved up to Maine because I wanted to learn how to build boats. So I spent two years as an apprentice in New England uh, building lobster boats and sailboats and doing some yacht restoration and stuff like that, but mainly traditional wooden boats. Well, anyways, in that time... Uh, we built this 18-foot rowboat, mm-hmm. and my wife and I took it down the river. We went from Lake Itasca in northern Minnesota, the headwaters, uh, down to New Orleans. So we rowed the thing over 2,000 miles. And the, wow. the, the intention, though, was to go from the headwaters to the Gulf. So we were going to go source to sea. And uh, this would have been in 2002, and we were in our 20s at the time. So... For a variety of reasons, we stopped in New Orleans, which is about 100 miles short of the Gulf. And, um, you know, life happens. We moved, we, we had kids and moved around. And, and um, I had that office job after I lost my wood shop in the, in the Great Recession, 2010 11. Mm. I went back to school to learn how to do CAD. And I ended up hmm. working this office job the first time I'd ever had a job with a chair and a computer mm-hmm. and, you know, health insurance and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> and it's, you know, it, as secure as it was and as predictable as the pay was, I just could, it just wasn't me. I just could not 
understand it. And it was right about the time I turned 40. And, uh, you know, I had, I don't know what, I, I had what I guess I would call a uh, mental, emotional breakdown, and I ended up at the Vanderbilt Psych Hospital with some uh, pretty pretty serious uh, conditions. Um, but uh, anyhow, it was sort of in that winter that I decided uh, we're going to go back and finish the river. We always said we were going to go source to sea, and we, we quit 100 miles from the end. We quit. And so this was at the point in my life when I was like, I'm, I'm tired of starting things and not finishing them. I'm not going to quit this, so we're going to go back and finish it. And so my daughter helped me rebuild the boat because it had kind of rotted over the previous 15 years. And we put the boat back in the water in 2018, and we finished the river from the, the spot that we took out, and we rode it out into the Gulf. And so uh, I, I, I need to work on a shorter pitch than that, but, <laughs> but that's the book. The book is about uh, the book is about building the boat, coming into midlife, and then going back and finishing the finishing the trip. Oh, I love it. So how so how are you finishing the book? Like how are you sticking to the plan? So I've written plenty of things in the past. I've written songs and done essays and magazine articles and the like, but I've never written a book before. So this is kind of new territory for me. Mm -hmm. And um I can't remember the math that I figured out, but I I think it was ten thousand words a month. I was kind of so I'm aiming mm. for a book that's about seventy five to ninety thousand words. So that's like a three hundred three hundred ten page book. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and, I re and I and from reading some some other uh, author coaching books, you know, you got to write over and then edit down. So I just said my arbitrary line was one hundred and twenty thousand words. That'll give me thirty thousand words to kind of edit out. And so I think. I don't have the math in front of me, but I think it was something like 120,000 words. If I did that over 12 months, that's 10,000 words a month. And 10,000 words a month, I think, is 333 words a day. So I sit down every day, and I'll write. Sometimes I'll write 333 words. Sometimes I'll write 500 words. Sometimes I'll hit 1,000. Um, but I'm, tr I'm trying to write 10,000 words a month. And I wouldn't show these words to anybody right now because it's just some of it's incoherent and some of it's mm -hmm. just sort of like when I'm writing songs and it's just sort of and then this happens here and then this happens here. I'm just sort of filling in some blanks. So it's not really uh, – it's, really, uh, it's not edited. It's not publishing ready. <clears throat> but, I'm gonna ha but I will have – I'm at 114,000 words now. Hmm. So the six thousand more words, I'll have uh, the hundred and twenty there to kind of to kind of work on. But as far as how I'm keep, keeping tooth, my wife was laughing at me that I printed, <laughs> printed out these uh, like these blank thermometers, one for every month, and uh, then I broke that ten thousand down into twenty five hundred. So every twenty five hundred words, I get the reward of pulling out the little red marker and scribbling in. That I'm a visual person. I know a lot of artists are, so maybe maybe that would work for some people. But I mean, that's that's how I've kind of done it. The same way that the same way that you know, that every Thursday night we're going to get together and record. I said every day I'm going to write 333 words. Now some days, I mean, I can't say I've done it every day, um, but probably for the last 10 months, I might miss I might miss four or five days a month 
And that's about it. That's awesome. Um, yeah, just, just, it's, it's, uh, and again, I think if I had just gone into this without the experience of recording every Thursday night, without the experience of training for some of the, some of the races and stuff that I've done, uh, all of those things sort of inform the other, you know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? So mm-hmm. that, that strategy, it's the same strategy that I use in, in running and, 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 and making music is just to, just keep going. It doesn't matter, you know, it doesn't matter how slow you are. In fact, I've got this, uh, when people ask me about my races and, oh, well, what place did you come in? And uh, I'm terribly slow. So mm-hmm. I always tell people, I, I'm slow, but I don't quit. I mean, I'll run, yeah. I've run, I've run an ultra, which was a 50 K, so it's wow. 30, a 32 mile trail run. And I came in dead last. Yeah. Um, but I did it. So I'm slow but I, I don't quit. <laughs> That's awesome. And I, th- I, 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 and I used to quit earlier in, you know, my early days, I would, if I wasn't great at something or it wasn't going well, I would kind of quit it. And you kind of, you know, you, like we were talking about earlier, you get a little age and you get that perspective and that wisdom that like, you're going to have to push through the messy middle if you want to, if you want to, you know, complete anything that's oh my god i can relate to that so much there's so many things i didn't pursue for many years even though i was interested in them because i i wasn't immediately good at them you know just like totally yeah (laughs) that's not at all how i approach things now Um, now i i kind of enjoy the messy part and of trying to get to know Uh something and learn something um and, and I'm out of my ego about it. I'm able to detach from outcomes. And a lot of that came with yoga and meditation later, you know, later in uh, life that I wish I would have had a hold of as a, uh-huh. you know, I wish in my, t- in my teens, somebody had impressed upon me how powerful yoga was. Um, cause even when yeah, I'm I wonder, practicing, though, you know, I wonder if we would have been receptive to it. Cause I feel the same way that I wish somebody had introduced me to it. And then I think about how I was and sort of my mindset at that time. And I'm like, I, w- I wish somebody had brought that stuff to my attention. But it, at the same time, I'm not sure how receptive I would have been. You know, we're talking about quitting something that you're not great at. So my daughter, she's 12. And when she was eight, we were doing piano lessons and she did it for about two years. And she did a couple of recitals and she quit playing because she'd go to these recitals that were comprised of all of this teacher's students. So it was everyone from six years old to 16 years old. Well, my daughter's eight or nine, and she'd go up there after some 14-year-old had banged out some beautiful piece by Chopin, and, mm-hmm. you know, she she was playing some pretty elementary songs. And I think that it was interesting to me to see that ego get in the way um, because she didn't want to pursue piano anymore because she realized... I'm not as good as those other girls. And we mm-hmm. had to tell her those other girls have been playing for, you know, as long as you've been alive, they've been playing. <laughs> right. You really, it's, it's, it's a tough thing that we all kind of go through. And I would hope that people uh, can sort of see what you've seen, which is you've got to, um, you got to set your ego aside and, 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 you know, make some shitty art. Right. And for, and for me, that also circles back to the environment thing. What, what you were talking about earlier about whether you'd be receptive to it. I've seen kids be super receptive to yoga because it was a part of the culture um, of a place. Oh, totally. You know, totally. whereas like where I grew up, 
I, you know, that hell no, that wasn't a, <laughs> that wasn't a part of the culture. <laughs> you would, you would have been, you, you, I would have been, somebody would have said that, uh, that I was gay and they would have used that as a derogatory term and just all kinds yep. of, all kinds of awful yep. shit, you know? Um, yep. But if or they you, would have connected know. it back to, uh, they'd have connected it to some kind of witchcraft mm-hmm. or some kind of, right. You know, Sa- they'd have called it satanic. Approve of. Yeah. Yeah. If yeah. it's not Protestant, it's satanic is what, you know, yeah. was the message that I was told. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I grew up in Memphis, and uh, it's, it's, I got much of the same, uh, the same sort of feedback growing up. And, I, you know, I was raised in a, I was raised in a Protestant church, but uh, uh, I don't know that I knew anybody. I think my mother did yoga, but she sort of kept it, it. It was not an advertised thing, you know what I mean? Of course, in those days, you know— a yoga mat was something I don't know where she would have even bought a yoga mat back in the eighties in Memphis. And they certainly didn't have yoga pants and all the other accoutrements to go with it. Yeah. Yeah. There was no yoga studio in in Memphis growing up. Right. Right. (laughs) Well, Instagram influencers wearing (laughs) yoga pants in Memphis in 1989. (laughs) Mm -hmm. No, sir. No, sir. Um, Dude, we're coming up. I can't believe this. We've been talking for almost an hour, and I I've been wanting to ask you before I let you go about uh, your love of vintage baseball. What like <laughs> I'm an I'm a baseball f- fanatic. It was the only thing I cared about growing up. It it was baseball and girls were the only things that mattered to me for yep. many years of my life. Um, uh, and then I got away from it for a long time. And then I coached a little bit and started playing softball. Oh, cool. Yeah, like did some other, you know, I, I dip my toe in there sometimes. But recently, like in recent years, I've started to actively watch games again and all that kind of stuff, you mm-hmm. know, like really, really get more involved. And um, But you have a very specific passion. Can you talk about that? Sure. Yeah. I um, So I've always been a baseball fan. Uh, was raised uh, a, a Cubs fan in Memphis. My mother's from Chicago, so mm. I was raised as a Cubs fan and went to Wrigley Field, I guess, the first time when I was probably four or five years old with my granddad. And it's just always been – I've just always loved that, that sport. Um, I also have the proclivity towards history, and so mm. I've loved the older part of the sport. And I remember watching Ken Burns's documentary on baseball uh-huh. and, and just really loving all those old pictures and just just the uh just the traditions and history of the game and <clears throat> i mentioned earlier that i worked on wooden boats for a while and we, we traveled around the country and i got to do some work on some boats in new york and michigan well i was living in port here on michigan working on uh, a, a schooner that took tourists out on the on lake huron and at the library one day, there was a poster on the on the door uh, that if you wanted to learn how to play vintage baseball, come to the park. And the artwork on the poster was, you know, the dude with the old uniform with the short bill hat and the, like, mm-hmm. shirt with the shield on the front. And I, was, I said, I got to see what this is about. And uh, so I showed up at the park that Saturday, and the guy who was putting together the team had a dozen eggs. And uh, he said, we're going to warm up with these. And uh, I said, okay. And 
so we start throwing eggs back and forth to one another with no gloves, so we're barehanded. Yeah. And uh, he said, "That's this is how you need to learn to catch the ball because we're going to play the rules of 1864. <laughs> well, the 1864 rules, there was no glove. And it's oh. not because they were disallowed in the rules. They hadn't been invented yet. So it was a barehanded game back in the early 1860s. And so before we ever got to throw this vintage baseball, which is a little, it's slightly larger than the modern ball, and it's only a little bit softer. It is not a cushioned baseball by any means. And so you kind of have to learn to catch it by bringing both hands down, which is why he had the eggs there. Like you, you, you're going to, you want to catch it a little more gingerly than you would, you know, a baseball if you were wearing a glove. And, uh, and that same day, he sort of taught us the rest of the rules. And one of the major rule differences is that a fielder can catch the ball on one bounce for an out. In other words, if you're huh. playing second base or left field or wherever you are in the field, if the batter hits the ball, you can it can, it can hit the ground one time, and if you catch it before it hits the second time, then then the batter's out. Wow. And uh, so it, so, anyways, we I ended up playing that summer when I was living in Port Huron. So I'd work on this boat during the week, and then the weekend we'd travel around Michigan, and we'd play in Bay City and Detroit. We'd play all these other teams. And they'd been playing for years, so they all kicked our asses. But it was so much fun playing this game because my, you know, I quit playing baseball when I was in the eighth grade. I got both of my front teeth knocked out playing first base. So I've got fake front teeth, and that sort of scared me off the field for a while. And I didn't get back in. I didn't get back on the field until I played men's league softball. Uh, before I moved to Maine. So I would have been 19 or 20. And it's the worst. <laughs> Men's League softball is just the worst. And this game was fun because, uh, you know, there were men and women playing it, and there was just a feeling of camaraderie. Not that it wasn't competitive, but there was just an – I don't know. There was an appreciation for everyone's um, – abilities and efforts and stuff that are all shapes and sizes out there. It just felt more like a, it felt more like an egalitarian uh, uh, event to me. And I just, something about that connected with me too. So the history of the game, the kind of antiquated, unique rules, and as almost as important as that other stuff was just the mood on the field was just a whole lot more inclusive. Uh, and so when I moved back to Tennessee, there weren't any, teams here to join so myself and another guy that i met uh we got together and we started the tennessee association of vintage baseball back in 2013 and we've been uh, we've been playing at historic sites all over tennessee since then so we, wow. we play by the old rules we use the old language and we wear uh incredibly hot wool uniforms <laughs> <laughs> well i saw you you're a part of an ad campaign right yeah Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. So there's a, uh, yeah, that's right. There's a there's a guy named uh, uh, Brian at Smacker Bats, and he makes these beautiful vintage bats. He used to live here uh, outside of town in Murphy, but he's moved to Arizona to be closer to spring training and closer to some of the year round baseball. Um, mm. But he and I had become friends while he lived here, and uh, I've got I've got a pair of mutton chops hanging off the side of my face, and so he said, you know, you'd be a pretty good candidate for my ad. <laughs> so we uh so yeah i got to be uh i got to be the the model it's the only time in my life i've been 
been uh, been a model for some uh, for any kind of campaign. <laughs> That's awesome, man. But, yeah, it was me. Um, last one, and then I'll let you go. And thank you so much for your time. This has been such good medicine and so much fun, man. Um, oh, likewise. Thank you so much. Yeah, for sure. My my pleasure. What uh, like we always end? Uh, what are you getting down on? What have you been listening to or reading or what what arts got you fired up right now? Man, I I love Phoebe Bridgers. Yeah. New record. Uh, yes. Punisher, I think it's called. Yes. Um, and before that, that, that deal she did with Connor Oberst, Better Oblivion Community Center, I'm, I still spend that one uh, pretty often. Um, I love the new John Moreland and the new Brian Fallon, uh, mm-hmm. LP5 and Local Honey. Mm-hmm. Uh, Birds of Chicago, they've been around for a while. I don't know. Sometimes, and I'm sure mm-hmm. you're like this too, you get internet you get introduced to a band and you're just like, how the hell yes. did I not hear about these All guys time. before? Yeah. Yeah. Somehow I got introduced to birds of Chicago and it's just right up my alley. And I couldn't believe I'd never, uh, never heard them before. Um, Mercy Bell. She's a Nashville yeah. songwriter and she's got this song called, uh, chocolate milk and whiskey that, uh, I mean, I love her whole record, but that song, oh man, it, it kind of, it's a it's a cute title, but like the lyrics just kind of they just wreck you. It's so uh, good. Uh-huh. And uh, let's see. Wow, that's great. Uh, you know, oh, I love uh, I love his golden messenger. That yeah. was the before the world turned upside down. Uh, the last show I saw was his golden messenger at Basement East in Nashville, and a few weeks later it got hit by the tornado, um, and then right on the heels of that was the, was COVID. So that was, that was my last live music experience mm. uh, as an audience member would have been his golden messenger. But uh, He's great what am I, what am I, I'm reading, um, I just read late migrations, which is by Margaret wrinkle. She's a Nashville, uh, writer. Uh, okay. Let's see the, Oh, you know, you, you talk on your podcast, some about anxiety and dealing with, yeah. And existential dread and those sort of things. Um, man, one of my favorite books on that, Scott Stossel wrote a book called My Age of Anxiety. Okay. That's really, really good. It's really good. Um, I love books about nature and history and stuff. And so Jack Davis, who's a, he's a Floridian, mm. uh, he, wrote a book called, he wrote a book called The Gulf, The Making of an American Sea, hmm. which is a terrific uh, book about the, the Gulf of Mexico. Cool. And let's see. Let me throw one more out there for you. You're a writer, so have you read anything by uh, Roy Peter Clark? No. He is. He's a teacher at uh, some writing institute in Saint Petersburg. I can't remember the name of it, but he's written a couple of books, like Fifty Essential Writing Tools. I think is one of them. Another one's called like X-ray, X-ray Vision or something like that, where he sort of takes apart. Uh, earlier masterpieces and like why this sentence works this way and how this, this sentence that's familiar with you, how it would look if it was written another way. And so why, hmm. you know, it gets, it gets into the, really the nuts and bolts, the structure of, uh, of writing. So I'm, oh, I'm, I love uh, that. yeah, it's, it's, that's good stuff. Uh, what do you, Hey, let me ask you a question. What do you listen to when you're writing? Uh, it, depends um you usually it's important for me to either have no music at all or 
something like um i listen to a lot of like lo-fi um hip-hop uh okay beats you know kind of thing yeah um yeah because so if the thing about the way i consume music is uh if lyrics are involved i'm gonna be i'm gonna be involved in the lyrics and so yeah you know it's difficult i'm not good at doing two things at once i i like if we're if chris and i go out to dinner for example uh i would really rather there not be sports on tv because i'm gonna want to watch that sports you'll get drawn in yeah. Yep. yeah yeah and and then i can't I'm have the a same conversation way writing yeah yeah no no i can't do lyrics but i don't know i've tried to do i've tried to listen to some of that lo-fi uh beats and stuff when i'm writing but i think even anything with like a hard rhythm mm. even that kind of gets me i think it affects just like the cadence of the syllables or so i feel mm. like i'm always on the search for some kind of like ambient instrumental stuff and like i've listened to zoe keating and max richter and stuff like that when i'm writing but i'm always looking for um you know i, I didn't come up in that kind of music so i always feel like the the new kid kind of searching around for some ambient instrumental stuff. So I'm always looking for, for new stuff to kind of yeah. put on the Spotify. Yeah. Elliot Bronson, uh, was on the show a little while ago and he was talking about, you ever listen to Elliot, his music? No, man. What's yeah. Elliot Bronson. Bronson? He's a, he's a dear sweet man and a damn fine songwriter. Um, his new, his new record comes out later this month, but and it's phenomenal. It's so good, and, and uh, you know, go listen to that episode when you're in the shop next time, um, and check out like what he has to say and the whole stories behind it. But he's got two records. One of them is called James, and one of them I think is a self-titled record that are both worth your time. And he was saying that cool. he's been listening to a lot of ambient. He just throws on like on Spotify. He just turns on a a station. Um, and so that has been my morning routine during my morning pages lately, especially as I'm trying to get my two puppies to calm down so I can do something is <laughs> I'll play some ambient music and it se- seems to chill them out, but I don't know any Does of the artists, you know, <laughs> it, it, the ambient music, it, it chills the dogs out. It does. Yeah. Yeah, it does. Nice. I, I nice. used to do with, when we had nonsense, nonsense is a, a year old now when we first got her she was crazy she's got terrier and miniature pincher in her so she's just intense all the time and uh she is uh she she just will go she'll go and go and go like her motor just never runs out of energy and um jazz would calm her down I, i even put on twitter for a while i would i would like uh hashtag nonsense the jazz critic dog and we would like whatever we were listening to that day i would put because i could like it affected her mood i could see you know certain Uh certain music really calmed her down and some and some didn't some got her all fired up but with uh with the new one conundrum he's more chill and he seems to like the ambient music it seems to chill him out Um, okay maybe i should try that on my uh I should try that on my kids because they're they're ten and twelve, and there's a lot of similarities between um, uh, organisms that where their motor is always running and they never will shut up or sit down. That's uh, yeah. Well, yeah. and those are two very different ages too. I mean, they're only a couple years apart, but a twelve year old is so different from a ten year old. Well, that's yeah, that's 
that's true. That the twelve the twelve year old is a, a girl, and we joke that she's she's twelve going on twenty two, <laughs> and my son is my son is ten going on about six. So yeah, that's, uh, yeah <laughs> that's it, funny. The, the maturity level between a ten year old boy and a a twelve year old girl is uh it's always a source of uh entertainment but also frustration. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, our niece is like that. She's twelve and or she'll be twelve soon. And uh she I guess she's eleven actually, but it's she it certainly seems like she's twenty five years old. <laughs> it's oh, amazing. Yeah. yeah, pre preteen preteen girls especially that they, they have a maturity that uh and they have a maturity that the, the young boys don't seem to have. I don't know. Right. <laughs> God, that's a whole other podcast. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Dude, this has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you for, you know, reaching out in the first place, um, however long yeah. ago, and, you know, being a part of this whole marinade thing. And um, thank you for spreading the word. And thank you for your beautiful record. And thank you for your time, man. This was such a pleasure. Absolutely, hey, proud to be a part of it, and uh, I love I love the podcast and and, uh, and 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 following the stuff you post. So I'm I'm honored to be a part of it. I appreciate awesome. it. Awesome, man. Well, have a great rest of your day, man. All right, brother. You too. All right. You too. All right. Bye.